Embarrassing. Well, I'm sure everyone probably somewhere in their house has a box of electrical cords, USB cords, chargers, headphones, and whenever you get that box together, when you put it all in, at some point it was neat and ordered, but when you go out to try and find that cord or the headphone, what, what's happened? Somehow it's become a tangled, terrible mess. At least that's what it looks like in our house at times, until Maddie reorganises it every time. <laughs> It can be tempting when I look at that tangled mess to be like, let's just throw it out. Let's just start again. We'll buy new cords. I cannot be bothered. It's not worth it. Now, when it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood and gender, things are confusing. It is a bit of a tangled mess. The fall, sin, add to it 70 years of, you know, different ideologies about gender. And it can be tempting to think, oh, we just need to throw it out and start again. Um, it's too hard. Um, let's just give up. Um, but what we want to do is actually re-go back to the ordering principles. Rather than looking at the world and even how we do it in our church, go back to the first principles and figure out what, is it, what does God say about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And when we go back to Him, we'll find that that box will suddenly start to make a whole lot more sense. It might be, you might be wondering... And I used to think this. I remember, I used to think, it's not possible. It's so, it's so enculturated. Is it even possible to define what is masculinity or what is femininity? What a man is, what a woman is outside of anatomical and biological structures? Let alone how should a man act or how should a woman act? How can we in, in this world make such black and white distinctions? You might also be wondering, is it wrong for a man, a white man, to be the one here doing that for you? <laughs> now, we could go on all morning outlining the difficulties, the complexities. Uh, I, you know, there's a million different caveats I could give about how bad men have led and abuse and all those things. And yes, but we're going to zero in. I want us to actually spend more of our time looking at what God's word says uh, than the problems so that we can start to rebuild the broken world around us. The only way we can do it, though, is if we have an authoritative, transcendental truth that cuts through the moment of culture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 tells us what that authoritative, transcendental truth is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the person, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what you need to know about womanhood is not comprehensively spoken of in the Bible, but it's sufficiently spoken of. All you need for life and godliness to be a woman is sufficiently addressed in God's word. Your gender, your roles as a single, as a married, as a mother, as a grandmother, as a daughter. We have in the Bible authoritative and sufficient knowledge for all of these categories. And so today I'm going to try and look at the head, the heart and the hands of biblical femininity. We're going to seek to understand biblical femininity, embrace 
biblical femininity. If I keep saying that word, I'm gonna, it's going to be a tongue twister. And practice biblical femininity and see what that looks like. And then, by God's grace, it's women's growth group next week. So you get even more chance to talk about it. So we won't get everything done today, but we'll get something done. So head, heart, hands, that's where we're going. Let's look at, firstly, the head. Point one, understanding biblical femininity. Uh, so where should we turn? Well, should quote some women's movies or, you know, uh, Sound of Music. Let's start at the very beginning. When you read, you begin with? When you sing, you begin with? And when you study biblical manhood and womanhood and gender and masculinity, femininity and complementarity, you, you begin with Genesis? Okay. I was pretty happy with myself when I came up with that. All right, let's have a look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I know we know this, but there's something like Reb's prayed, renewing of the mind when you read God's Word again. Genesis 1, 26, let God's Word refresh you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's a comprehensive, foundational truth that God has created man and woman in his image, both of them different, both of them reflecting his glory. And he's given them a charge to take dominion of the earth. Whatever we believe about climate and sustainability and everything, we mustn't lose the fact that the fundamental charge on manhood and womanhood is to take dominion, is to care for this earth. And notice that the dominion mandate, as it's called, or the cultural mandate, is given to both men and women. It's not that men are called to rule the earth and women are just kind of there around as it happens, is that men and women were created to take dominion of the earth, everything. And it's comprehensive, from the birds of the air to spiders and creeping things. So what does it mean to be a man, though? To, because to understand womanhood, we actually have to understand manhood first. The Genesis story, if you read in chapter 2, sort of changes tact a little bit, and it kind of retells the same story, but from a different timeline. And then in Genesis 2, we see God creates this garden and he only places the man in it to begin with. And he's alone. Look at Genesis 2.15. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden 
to work it and keep it. So although both have the cultural mandate in chapter 1, God has given men the chief responsibility for the task. Responsibility for the task. To work and keep. Or you could translate to serve and guard. So when God establishes the world and he establishes these fundamental priorities and archetypes, he says to the man, you're in charge. Work it and keep it. What does it mean to be a woman then? Well, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So man has the responsibility, but not the ability to do it. He needs help. And so God creates the woman out of the rib of the man, this beautiful picture of complementarity. Not sameness, he could have made another dude, uh, but he made a lady. And he made her different, physically different, emotionally different, chemically different, biologically different, so that together they could fulfill the dominion mandate to rule the earth for God's glory so that God's glory would cover the earth as, it co- as the water covers the sea. Her role is to help him. Her role is subordinate but not inferior. We, it's only because of our sinful mindsets that we think order or suborder or hierarchy means inferiority. She is to use all her gifting, all of her skill, all of her creativity, even her gifts of leadership to help the man with his responsibility to work and keep the garden. Fundamentally, he's responsible. Fundamentally, she is supportive. Then in Genesis 2.19, Adam is given the job of lording it over creation. He names every animal, which is a symbol of authority and ownership and ruling. And then eventually he chooses Eve as his helper. And he names her Eve. Again, reaffirming the, the pattern, the hierarchy. There's much that could be said about this concept. But basically, what this passage, these fundamental chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 is teaching us is that men and women are equal. They both display the glory of God. You need womanhood to display parts of God's image that manhood doesn't display. You need manhood to display parts that woman doesn't display. They both have the task. Man's responsible. Women are called to support man as they both go out and take dominion of the earth. That term helper is not a diminished term. God is called a helper. Um, It's only our sort of maybe our materialist or capitalist mindset that thinks helper means less. Actually, helper is God is our helper. And if God is willing to be named as a helper, then we shouldn't think it's anything less than the most glorious of all terms. But then we get to Genesis 3. And obviously, we have that really sad moment when the snake deceives Eve, says, you can be like God. She takes the bait. Adam presumably is by her side, and the whole thing unfurls. But what is, who does God come after? If you look at Genesis 3, 8 to 12, God's walking in the garden. He calls out for who? Adam. Adam hides and then blames his wife. I think it's instructive that even though Eve sinned first, God calls on Adam. 
So even in the fall, the hierarchy is maintained. Adam's responsible. It wasn't his fault that Eve ate at first, in a sense, but he's responsible for her sin. The result, well, God curses woman and man and the serpent. And even in the curses, God's cursing their fundamental roles. If you look at Genesis 3.16, what does God curse the woman? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. How does she help Adam to take dominion of the earth? One of the key ways is through bearing children. If there's only Adam and Eve, it's going to take a long time to take dominion of the earth. You need a few more helpers. And so one of the greatest ways is to not just be a vessel for a child, but to raise children. But then he curses their relationship. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the, the hierarchy is still there, but now it's, there's a break. Instead of it being this dance, now they're both trying to lead. And then there's disjunction and it doesn't work. Then look at how God curses Adam. Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, rather than leading her, you were led by her. You've eaten of the tree. Cursed is the ground because of you. So his fundamental domain is to use the physical strength that God has given him to work the ground, and now it's going to be futile. It's going to bear thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard. It's going to be back-breaking. And the relationship with your helper is now going to be really tough. But then look at Genesis 3.20. Again, just to demonstrate that the, the difference and the order is not completely removed. Genesis 3.20 the man then names his wife Eve. The man called his wife's name Eve. So even after the fall, there's that sense of the hierarchy, the, the, the difference, the different roles, and he demonstrates his leadership by naming her. So look, that's a real flyby tour, but at the heart of manhood is a calling to lead, provide, protect, and take responsibility for the garden in this context, in the home and the world. And at the heart of womanhood is a disposition to follow the lead of the man and to be his helper. This is the pattern before the fall. It's been cursed after the fall and made more difficult, but it's not been obliterated. Elizabeth Elliot said this, and if you haven't if you don't know Elizabeth Elliot, you should get to know Elizabeth Elliot. She's a great woman to follow. Stern woman, but a good woman. What sort of world might it have been if Eve had refused the serpent's offer and have said to him instead, let me not be like God. Let me be what I was made to be. Let me be a woman. Or you could add, let me not be a man. Let me be a woman. So firstly, godly women need to understand biblical femininity and the femininity that is shown us in one to three is that there's got to be a disposition to follow and to support and to help let's move to point two though embracing biblical femininity or embracing a feminine disposition i'll get to that in a moment so what i what i want us to avoid is the possibility and this is a real possibility of saying in our heads, or theologically, I'm a complementarian, but practically not being one. 
It's very possible to say, yes, I believe in certain complementary values, but not actually be a complementarian because you don't love it. Complementarity is not like swallowing you know, bitter tea and you're like, oh, yeah, well, I have to have my medicine every day. <laughs> it, it might be hard at first, but over time, to truly like, be a complementarian person is to actually embrace it and to love it. Because if you believe it's God's word and his best, then you're saying like, oh, this is honey. This is sweet. This is good. This is what I want to be. This is how I'm meant to be. And so I don't want us just to be a church that believes in, you know, the differences between men and women, but embraces them, loves them. At the heart level, go, this is God's best for me. So let's look at, though, what a man is called fundamentally to do because you can't, again, you can't talk about womanhood without manhood. That's just how it is. John Piper, in his book, um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which he wrote with Wayne Grudem, it's about 700 pages. It's the, it's the book. If, you want, if you're ever wondering about these issues, that's the book. It's free on Desiring God. You can read it. I printed off a chapter for you if you want it. But he says this, and I think this is a really great quote about manhood, and this is what I preached to the man about a year ago. He says this, At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So it's not everything about biblical manhood, but that the heart of it is that men are meant to have a godly sense of responsibility, that I'm in the garden, God told me to work and keep it, to provide and protect. How can I provide? How can I protect? So even if you've got a man who's disabled and a burglar breaks into his house and his wife is the one that actually has to go downstairs with the baseball bat because he can't, if he's lying in bed thinking, I wish I could get up and protect my family, that's mature masculinity. But if he's lying in bed going, oh, you do it, I don't care, then he's not, that's not actually mature masculinity. So you don't always have to be able to in, live it out for it to be mature masculinity. You need to have the key is the sense of it. Because 99% of the application comes from embracing it in your heart. Now, if we flip to the women, we're going to unpack this definition a bit to try and help us. So let's have a look at what he defines as the heart of biblical femininity. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Just read over that again, because there's a lot in there. We get, I'm going to go through it, but just check your heart. What, what do you think about that? How does that land on you just as you hear it the first time? At the heart of mature femininity, biblical womanhood, is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture, strengthen leadership. Now, it doesn't include wives, mothers, it's a comprehensive statement, whether you're a single, whether you're a young girl, an older woman, a widow, a divorcee. This is just biblical femininity, according to John Piper. And I think it accurately reflects what the Bible teaches. It's not comprehensive, but it's quite foundational. So let's unpack it a little bit. At the heart of. 
So he's not saying everything about biblical femininity. There's a lot more you could say. But at the heart, the non-negotiable aspect of biblical womanhood is this freeing disposition. He then qualifies it to say mature femininity. So there's lots of feminine things. You can be very fem- there can be lots of feminine aspects that accord with your gender which aren't mature. So we're looking at what's not, not just any femininity, but mature femininity. And the key is this phrase, a freeing disposition. A freeing disposition. Now, I want to quote Piper at length a little bit because I think it'll just help flesh it out. He says this, I focus on mature femininity as a disposition rather than a set of behaviours or roles because mature femininity will express itself in so many different ways depending on the situation. Hundreds of behaviours may be feminine in one situation and not in another. The specific acts that grow out of the disposition of womanhood vary considerably from relationship to relationship, not to mention from culture to culture. That's why we don't want to make rules or laws or have a handbook or women can do this, women can't do that. There's only a very small number of biblical injunctions about leadership in the home and leadership in the church. And then a lot of it is just get the disposition and then live by the Spirit of God in godly counsel in relationship with other women. For example, the biblical reality of a wife's submission would take different forms depending on the quality of a husband's leadership. This can be seen best if we define submission not in terms of specific behaviours, but as a disposition to yield to the husband's authority and an inclination to follow his leadership. This is important to do because no submission of one human being to another is absolute. The husband does not replace Christ as the woman's supreme authority. She must never follow her husband's leadership into sin. She will not steal with him or get drunk with him or save a pornography with him or develop deceptive schemes with him. That's not what we're talking about. But even where a Christian wife may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will And that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honour him as head can again produce harmony. So I think this is a really useful definition because it doesn't require, it, it doesn't mean that you always have to just do this certain thing, submit, obey, follow. But instead, it's a it's a heart of like, I wish, I wish you would lead well. I wish you weren't doing this. I want you to be the man that God wants you. I want you to be righteous. I want to fall under your leadership. I want you to charge ahead. I want the man in our, in our, our community, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our nation to lead the way in righteousness and justice and peace. And then I want to give all my energy to helping them. I wish that was the case. I think that's at the heart of mature femininity is wishing for that case. John Piper then adds this qualifying term, a freeing disposition. Because it is quite vulnerable and difficult as a woman, and my wife Maddie has really helped me to understand this, to place yourself in the hands of another. 
Now, we all submit, you know, to leaders, governors, policemen, military, things like that. But there is something hard about submitting yourself to someone else. But if this is God's will, then it's freedom. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8, 31 and 32, and to the Jews, sorry, who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This disposition is freedom, if it's true. You might think it's not true, okay? But if you think it's true, embrace it, because it's true freedom as well. He gives a great example of two women jumping out of an airplane. Both experience the free fall. One's got a parachute on, the other one doesn't. Perhaps you could argue the one that's encumbered by the straps and the weight of the parachute experiences slightly less freedom than the lady free-falling and floating and dancing through the sky. But at some point, she will lose her freedom and become bondage to calamity and death as she strikes with gravity and the earth. Whereas the lady who's encumbered by the parachute rips the cord and experiences the freedom of safety the freedom of floating, the freedom that the incumbent only could provide. True freedom. Piper then says, God does not intend for women to be squelched or cramped or frustrated. And I don't intend that either. But neither does he intend for women to do whatever seems to remove these feelings without regard to the appropriateness of the action. Sometimes freedom comes from outward changes in circumstance. Sometimes it comes from inward changes of the heart and mind. So it's not about what women can't do. That's not, it's really about embracing the disposition and then finding What's the channel? What's the lane? How can I best do that? Because that's what I was made for. And so the disposition is to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. Now, that qualifying term, worthy man, is important too. Uh, it does, you know, it, it does mean that there is a, a way in which you're going to have to Figure this out in the complexities of a sinful, fallen world. A good example of that is Abigail and Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. I, I won't go into all the details, but there's a really cool story where basically David has come into an area, he's on the run, um, and he's got all his soldiers with him. He needs food, so he approaches this wealthy landowner, Nabal, and says, look, you're, you're having a feast, can you please provide for my men? And Nabal's like, who's David? He's nothing. I hate him. No. And uh, we're not doing anything for you. And then David, in his sinful anger, is like, I'm going to kill everyone. And so he says, man, get your swords. We're going. Now, Abigail is Nabal's wife. And she's like, man, my husband is a dirtbag, basically. This, the text says it like, he's a fool and wicked. But everyone's going to die unless I do something. And so even though there's two men who are acting in rage and sinfulness, Abigail devises this plan to, in a, in a personal but non-directive way, try and appease David and save the household. 
So she uses her gifts of leadership. She uses her gifts of strength and influence. She bakes 200 loaves. She gets five slaughtered sheep. She gets the grain. She saddles the donkeys. She goes out and meets David. And she, she says um, to David, she falls at his feet and she says, Oh, on me alone, my Lord, verse 24, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, my husband, Nabal, as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord. So she's saying, look, don't blame him, blame me, it's my fault. Please don't kill us. And look at how David responds. He says to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. Then David received from her hand what she'd brought, and he said to her, go up in peace to your home. See, I have obeyed your voice. I've granted your petition. It's a wonderful story where it's, you've got sinful men, dumb men doing dumb things, and a woman comes in and sorts it out, but she doesn't betray her femininity. She, she as a woman, she gets the outcome done. And I just think it's a wonderful example. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells the wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that submit to them, that's the order, so that even if some do not obey their word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's the disposition that wins. It's beautiful. That's the thing. Rather than nagging or, or belittling or all those type of things, it's, well, just, just be really amazing as a woman and you'll have a far greater chance. That's how God has designed it. So this is the key. Men are called to have a sense of benevolent responsibility. Like, we're on. Let's go. Let's do it. To provide, lead, and protect women. And women are called to embrace as disposition to affirm, nurture the strength and leadership of worthy men. That's the dance. That's complementarity. That's manhood. That's womanhood. That's masculinity. That's femininity working to the glory of God. So the question is, are you as a lady, as a woman, in your stage, in your circumstance, willing to embrace this freeing disposition as a gift from God to help you live for his glory? So that's point two, the heart, embracing a feminine. I keep on changing my point names. What does it say on the sheet? Practicing biblical femininity? Oh, disposition. Okay, yeah, so point two, embracing a feminine disposition. Point three, practicing a feminine disposition. All right, how much time have I got? Okay. We will do Q&A, so there'll be a much more chance. I just want to say a few things about putting it into practice. Obviously, there's not a whole lot I can say. I can give some categories, but you guys could figure it out. But I like what Elizabeth Elliot says in her book, Let Me Be a Woman, which is just the worth the price of a title. The fact that I'm a woman does not make me a different kind of Christian, but the fact that I'm a Christian does make me a different kind of woman. Um, you take your womanhood everywhere you go. There's no like neutral spaces. There's no like, well, it's, you know, it's unisex. No, it's everyone's a man, everyone's a woman, everywhere they go. And you're a Christian woman. And so be a glorious Christian woman wherever you go. So how do we put it into practice? Well, it 
depends, okay? Uh, it's dependent on the context, your role, your stage of life, your status as a single or married or mother, grandmother, daughter. It depends on the quality of the men around you. Um, but there were three things, affirm, receive, and nurture. Let's just look at them briefly. Affirm. So feminine disposition is to affirm godly strength and leadership of men. That means you advocate for biblical complementarity. Even if there's no examples of it in your current life circumstance, you can still affirm this is good, this is true, this is what I believe, this is what I want, this is what God wants. So you affirm it. You're like, this is right. Secondly, receive it. When you encounter good male strength and leadership, receiving that leadership is, is paramount. Rather than reversing it or trying to take that role, a mature woman, Piper says, is glad when a respectful, caring, upright man offers strength and provides a pattern of appropriate initiatives in the relationship. She does not want to reverse the roles. She's glad when he's not passive. She feels herself enhanced and honoured and freed by his caring strength and servant leadership. That's, that's okay. You might want to do it different. You might think you could do it better. You probably can. But the heart of it is to be like, I'm going to, he's, he's trying. Okay, he's trying. I'll receive it. And I'll, I'll receive it. And then, thirdly, I'll nurture it. The helper role. You, your role is not to be the dominant leader. It's to help men be better so that everyone goes forward together. So you don't just affirm it. You don't just receive it. But then, you, this is crucial. You have to help men get better. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we need. We need women who... We, we are, men are offered like either just really arrogant and like, nah, this is what I'm doing. Or they're actually really like unsure. And they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel pathetic. And that's why we just abdicate. Be like, well, you, you seem better. You do it. What we need is a helper who can show off our, show our arrogance so that we realize, actually, I need you. Or need to put wind in our sails. Be like, no, you lead. You make the call. I love you. I'll support you. Whatever you do. Thank you for taking the responsibility. Thank you that I don't have to bear the consequence for this. You go, buddy. You're up front. <laughs> you take it. Uh, whatever the context, whether you're married or single, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you've got to do it in ways appropriate to your differing relationships. And we can't go into all the details now, but, you know, uh, if you're the female prime minister, how can you put it into effect in parliament or a principal at a school or a wife and a husband or a bus driver and your passengers, a staff doctor and your interns, a mother and children, judge and court personnel, single woman and her father, police officer and citizens in her precinct. There's so many different ways in which you can be a woman. Some of them might make it really difficult for you to affirm these things. I'm not going to make any rules, but you've got to figure out how do I do this in my context. Okay. So I think that's, yeah, there's a lot there. But the question there is, how can I affirm the strength and leadership of worthy men in my life? How can I receive strength and leadership from worthy men? How can I nurture strength and leadership of worthy men? What men can I diligently pray for that they would grow in their benevolent responsibility to lead? And how can I model and promote the free disposition of femininity in my home, church, and beyond? 
So there's some questions. We can't go into all the details there, but there's some things for you to think about. Now, you might be wondering, I don't know what to do. Well, I would appeal to you, find godly older women, or they might not be older, they might be younger, but more spiritually mature than you in this area. Find women like that and ask them to teach you. Study their life. Look at the outcome of how they live. Place yourself under them. This is the biblical paradigm. Titus chapter 2, verse 5 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. And what's at stake? That the word of God may not be reviled. There's no small consequence to your biblical femininity. Biblical femininity protects the honour of the gospel. Biblical you taking up yourself as a godly woman adorns the word of God. And you thwarting it brings the gospel into disrepute. So, we've seen through Genesis, trying to understand the feminine disposition, seeing that we're called not to just know it, but to embrace it, and then not just embrace it, but then seek to apply it because we're blessed in our doing. One, two quotes to finish. Elizabeth Elliot says, It is a naive sort of feminism that insists that women prove their ability to do all the things that men do. This is a distortion and a travesty. Men have never sought to prove that they can do all the things women do. Why subject women to purely masculine criteria? Women can and ought to be judged. This is important. Women can and ought to be judged by the criteria of femininity. For it is in their femininity that they participate in the human race. Don't try and be guys. Like... Just be women and do it great. That's the, ju- that's the criteria. That's, don't go, oh, I wish I could be. No, be, be you. You do you. There you go. <laughs> and G.K. Chesterton in the early no- uh, 20th century said, if I set the sun beside the moon, if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the flower beside the fruit, if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. Well, ladies, I hope the chords are somewhat reordered to some degree and you can see some patterns going forward. Let's take a moment now. I'll pray briefly. Then I think there's a five-minute chat and then we'll do some Q&A. Lord, I ask that you would bless um, the reading and the preaching and the applying of your word um, for the ladies of our church and, and who they influence. I pray that your spirit would Help them to apply it, to know how to live it out in their context, in the peculiarities and particularities of their life. Uh, For some, I'm sure, Lord, this is hard to hear and sounds potentially just terrible. Um, But Lord, I ask that your spirit would lead them uh, and that we would all have generosity and charity as we try and figure these things out together. We thank you that your word is not silent, that you've told us. We submit to your word. It's authoritative and sufficient for life and godliness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.